As you know, we are working our way through the book of uh, Daniel. And in the Protestant Bible, that's 12 chapters. In the Catholic Bible, of course, you get a bonus, you know, <laughs> two extra chapters if you're uh, Eastern Orthodox or Catholic. And we're in chapter 11, so we're kind of closing in. Uh, we are now in what's the, the final vision, which really occupies chapters 10, 11, and 12. So last week, uh, we did chapter 10. That's where the angel comes and sort of sets the stage and sets the expectation that a very important message is about to come. Uh, it comes in uh, chapter 11. Uh, chapter 10 ended with a couple of uh, little hints being dropped about what we're going to see in 11 and 12. just want to share those with you. The angel then says to Daniel, Do you know why I've come? A little drum beat in the background, you know, that it is drilling there. Here's the big one. It is to tell you what is written in the book of truth. In the book of Daniel and in Revelation and other apocalyptic writings, there are stories about books that exist only in heaven. So if a book exists in heaven, of course, that's just a metaphor, but what would you think would be in that book? What God knows, okay? Uh, and then this is said, I have come to help you understand, okay, well, what, what's in this book of truth? What is to happen to your people at the end of days? And as you know, the book of uh, Daniel is written uh, from the setting of the 6th century B.C., the exile and the Persian period. But it seems to make more sense in terms of the details 400 years later down in, in the 2nd century during the Maccabean crisis. Now, chapter 11, did any of you try to read it? Did any of you make it? <laughs> I had two people email me and said, what have you done to us? Okay. Uh, Chapter 11 is, is a favorite of people who want to distort the Bible to make it say whatever they want it to do. Because you got this reference to, remember the king of the north and the king of the south? And if you remember the 1970s, what two countries were those? Russia and China. At other times, they've been North Vietnam, South Vietnam. Currently, what do you think they're being interpreted as? North Korea, South, there are literally hundreds of those, which is one of the reasons that what we're trying to do is, is to understand what did it mean originally and kind of come to that message. So this vagueness there opens the doors to all kinds of strangeness. We're focusing on not the 20th century, but what does it appear to mean as it was written? Uh, and also the big issue today is why? Why did apocalyptic suddenly emerged in the second century B.C. as a literary form that had never existed before. It just popped on the world stage. And the first place it popped is in the book of Daniel, followed by the book of Enoch, followed by Baruch, followed by Ezra, followed by Revelation, followed by, followed by, followed by. I mean, we have over 40 of them that exist. You can actually compare them and look at them. Why was apocalyptic, why did it come into being? What's it trying to do? Uh, today, in chapter 11, we get the answer to that. Because chapter 11 is one of the most important chapters in that, and it actually we get insight into what is the purpose of apocalyptic literature, why was the book of Daniel written, why is it in our Bible, what's the value that it brings to us, uh, and why in particular, why does apocalyptic deal with the past as if it were the future? That's just weird, isn't it? You know, If you're writing... And as, as, as the scholars think, in the second century, but you put the voice of what's being said back in the sixth century, 
So that what was, was supposedly being written long, long, long ago, but talking about stuff centuries later, why would you do that? Yeah. And we actually have an answer in the cha 11th chapter of Daniel, too. Yeah, history never changes as among that, too. So we're going to start with Daniel 11, too. Now, verse 1 actually goes to the preceding chapter. There's an old story uh, of people who do manuscripts. You know that the chapters and verses were not in the Bible. You knew that, didn't you? Okay, that was put in uh, fairly recently. And the, the old joke was there's a monk writing. And he's got that little pointy thing on the scripture. And every time he hits a little bump, it goes, you know, that's a, that's a verse. And every time he hits a big bump, that's a, you know, and that's, a, that's a chapter changing. Which explains why in the Bible a lot of times, verses and chapters change in the middle of a sentence, okay, which is literally true. So verse 1 actually goes to the preceding. Now we get to verse 2. And here comes the angel's voice. Now I will announce the truth to you. Do you remember what the truth was? From the book of truth. About what's coming in the final days. That's your key. We're going to be narrating history here. We're going to be narrating 400 years of history. But which part of the history is the most important? The final days. So we're going to tell a story. But the punchline of the story is going to be at the very end. Three more kings shall arise in Persia. A fourth shall come forth. So from the time of the literary Daniel, we're going to walk four more Persian kings. And they have fairly long reigns. So we're kind of walking down time forward. Um, a fourth shall be richer than all of them. So this, this last king will be a tremendously rich king. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of, and we haven't mentioned, Greece. Now, in the 6th century B.C., nobody would even have mentioned Greece. In the 2nd century B.C., is Greece a big thing? A little feller by the name of Alexander the Great has been running up and down the countryside. Then a warrior shall arise. Okay, this fourth king is going to stir up things against Greece. Well, why would he do that? The warrior king shall arise and shall rule with great dominion and take action as he pleases. And while still in power, this is a description of Alexander. How old was Alexander when he died? 30, 31, right in there. You know, he, he conquered the world before he was 30. That, that was his claim to fame. And he did it in about three years. Okay? And then he died very, very suddenly. Okay? Remember what happened when Alexander died? His generals carved up his empire into four empires. His kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, northeast, southwest, but not to his descendants, children, his posterity, nor according to the dominion. The dominion that Alexander represented was Greece. Greece no longer controls these empires. These generals carve out their own little empires, and they become warring empires with each other. For his kingdom shall be uprooted and go to others beside these. It's not part of his plan. Of course, Alexander's problem was he left no will. He left no instructions. He, just, he was Darwinian. You know, fight it out. The, the strongest will survive. Four more Persian kings and then a Greek king. And, of course, this is advancing the timeline. Cyrus of Persia is about when? He forms the Persian Empire roughly. You may remember 500s, 
540 B.C. is the general one that's given. Alexander the Great, 330-something. So we're moving down a couple hundred years. So we go from the time of Cyrus, the Persia, or one of his near successors, to that of Alexander the Great of Greece. We're going to move from roughly 540 down to 331 B.C. Does that get us to the second century? No. But this is just the, the four kings and the, and, the, and the Greek king. Stir up all against Greece. You may remember from history that Greece was attacked by two Persian kings, Darius and Xerxes. Do you remember, who, remember the 300 Spartans? And you also remember that Alexander's father, Philip of Macedon, was one of the ones who did combat as Persia was. Persian Empire was expanding. They, well, they just wanted to annex Greece. The Greeks had some other ideas about that, so they fought the series of sea battles and land battles. Uh, these attacks are what led to Alexander's decision to attack Persia because Persia had attacked Greece on multiple occasions through two kings. And I guess the thought was, you've got to deal with them sooner or later, and he was just the man to do that. A mighty king will appear, a great power. He will do with his wishes. Very clear. There's only one guy in the ancient world that that would description would fit of fit he never lost a battle alexander the great never lost a battle even when he was outnumbered uh, hugely the empire will be broken up and parceled out here's a map uh, the yellow is the seleucids that are basically that's the syrian empire the perp the blue down there would be what egypt but that's the ptolemies remember a very famous ptolemy Cleopatra, Cleopatra was not Egyptian. She was Greek, okay? She was one of the Ptolemies. There were several Cleopatras. As a matter of fact, a couple of Cleopatras are being mentioned in chapter 11. And then sort of out of our picture, but the, uh, the ochre color and the green color are some too. And then temporarily a little purple up there. Uh, and this is an accurate, if you're reading through Daniel 11, and you've got a history book on the other side, what you're going to find out is Daniel is accurately cryptically, Reader's Digest version, but it's accurately narrating the events of this area geopolitically at that time. So what follows in chapter 11 is a very, uh, not detailed compared to some, but if you've been reading it, you think it's way too detailed. Summary of a 150-year conflict between two of the empires. You've got the Ptolemies of Egypt, who control Palestine first, and then the Seleucids of Syria, who take it away. And then the Ptolemies take it back, and then Syria takes it back, and the Ptolemies take it back. And guess, guess who's dead center in the middle of where the battles are fought? I think in West Texas, we refer to that as roadkill. Okay. <laughs> they are. They're right there where the two great are, and that, that's where they've been positioned. Remember Megiddo? You know, hundreds of, of, of civilizations have been there. Um, Palestine's caught in the middle. It's, it's a land bridge because you're not going to be taking your army through the middle of a desert. There's a strip about 20 to 30 miles wide that you can actually get down. And if you have a big army, you're just going to go right through Palestine. Daniel's account is a brief version compared to some others. Um, but takes us from the literary time of Daniel in the 6th century down through the Persian period. down to He will, by the end of the chapter, take us to 175 and the crisis of Antiochus Epiphanes, the Maccabean Revolt, and the time that Daniel is written to deal with. All of that happens in chapter 11. That's basically what chapter 11 is. First section, 
start earlier back in history with the Persians. We want to kind of move forward uh, down the road. Then the king of the south, which we know is Ptolemy's, but other people put as many different groups, shall grow strong. One of his officers shall go stronger than he. That's not good. That means the first king did what? Lost his position. He's been usurped by one of his own. He shall rule a, rail, a, a realm greater than his own realm. After some years, time passes, they shall make an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south, so we're in Egypt, Ptolemy's daughter, what do you think her name is? Cleopatra, not the Cleopatra. That's first century B.C., different one. There was a bunch of them. Daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north, Seleucids, to ratify an agreement. Okay, sounds encouraging. But she shall not retain her power. Politics in the ancient east are just, you know, they're dreadful. You don't last very long. And his offspring shall not endure. So the two that come together to work things out both lose their positions and are usurped by other people. He shall be given up. This is awfully specific, isn't it? Like maybe you have a script in the back that you're actually following, like a history book. She and her attendants and her child, a little detail there, and the one who supported her, in those times a branch from her roots shall rise up in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. So he's attacking northward through Palestine. He shall take action against them and he shall win. So the Egyptians win against the Syrians. Even their gods with their idols and their precious vessels of silver and gold, he shall carry off to Egypt as spoils of war. So capital of Syria is actually, remember where the Apostle Paul was? Antioch? That's the actual capital. So they get that far up north and they win. For some years he shall uh, refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter, the king of the north, shall invade the realm of the king of the south. Uh, just in case you were getting bored. But will return to his own land. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall advance like a flood and pass through and shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Coming through Palestine again, going the other direction. Moved by rage, the king of the south shall go out and do battle against the king of the north and shall muster a great multitude which shall, however, be defeated by his enemy. You have to have a high tolerance for history here, okay? <laughs> then the multitude shall be carried off. His heart shall be exalted. He shall overthrow tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. And the king of the north shall rise against a raise a multitude larger than the former, and after some years he shall advance with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, the lawless among your own people, shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, and by the way, that's the lawless among what group of people? Jews. Your own people. This is the angel talking to Daniel. So the Jews think it's, some of them think it's a good idea. Why don't we just get involved in this big mess? Not the smartest move ever, okay? Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. Want to guess what city that was? Jerusalem. And the forces of the south shall not stand. Uh, Israel had allied itself with the Ptolemies in the south against the north, but the north comes down, takes Jerusalem away from the Ptolemies, and now they're controlled by this other power. Not even his picked troops, for there will, shall be no strength to resist. 
He who comes against him shall take his actions, take the actions he please, and no one shall withstand him. Get a lot of that. He shall take a position in the beautiful land. What do you want to bet the beautiful land is? The land of milk and honey, the promised land. Now, we have this stereotype. What do you think Israel looks like? If you think desert, you're thinking south of Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Galilee, it is the Garden of Eden, okay? Our last trip up there, we were up there. I mean, it's lush forests, crops. It's the breadbasket of the whole area. Okay, it's beautiful. So probably thinking up in that area. And all that it shall be, all of it shall be in his power. He shall set his mind to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. He shall bring terms of peace and perform them. Remember what they used to say about the Romans? They create a desert and they call it peace. <laughs> when you kill everybody, nobody objects, okay? There's nobody left to object. In order to destroy the kingdom, he shall give him a woman in marriage, but it shall not succeed or be to his advantage. Afterwards, he shall turn to the coastlands, that little strip down there that all the armies march, and shall capture many, but the commander shall put an end to his insolence not one of the kings, but a usurper coming up. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him, he shall and he shall turn back toward the fortress of his own land. He shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Are you sufficiently confused? Okay. Here's the beauty of it. You don't have to track the details. Because although there's a lot of details being given, and we know from other sources, Josephus, who actually has a about a 75-page version of this that gives you great details, you know. Antiquities of the Jews, book 12. If you want to read it, it's on the Internet for free, you know. Great details. Books of 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees narrate the end of this, the part we haven't gotten to yet, okay. What we know is he's actually tracking down historically what actually happened and people would have known. Uh, he's... Condensed 150 years fairly well, uh, if you care about that that much, uh, during which there are no less than six wars between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. This is off the Internet, okay? This is just history. The First Syrian War, the Second Syrian War, the Third Syrian War. Now, you have the, uh, up in the, uh, the Syrian part, you've got Seleucus, Antiochus, more Seleucus, more Antiochus. These are the rulers. They like those two names. What do you have down below? Tell me one, two, three, four, five, and six. Okay. And what do you have in between? Cleopatra, Bernice, Laodicea, and you've got Israel is captured in there. So that's the big picture. That's what he started laying out the story, you know. <laughs> now, Josephus, who tells in a, in a, in a long writing, the history of the Jews. If you go to Antiquities Book 12, you can get the non-Reader's Digest version. Or if you go to First and Second Maccabees, the opening chapters uh, give you some more details. Uh, what these other two sources do, they let us know that, yes, Daniel is, in fact, accurate. And the historical events, as they're laid out in the angel's vision, are, in fact, true. Okay, this is the way it actually happened. There's no doubt about that. Uh, it's very detailed. Uh, but the point is, nobody who lived in the second century would have any doubt. It's like, uh, you know, like we know the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War I, 
World War II, Korean War, Vietnam War. We know that's a part of our history. So for the Jews, it's the same thing. It's part of their, uh, their recent history. Now, here's the bad news. Daniel's only covered the first four wars with all that detail. So he hasn't gotten to the end. Uh, he's gotten down to the captured Jerusalem by the Seleucids. Two more wars to go, go. But what's important for this is not the details of the war. You can know nothing about the details, and you can still get what this chapter is about. It's what the author weaves into the narrative. Not the political history, which everybody knew, but along the way, as he narrates his story, he puts in these little zingers, these little lines that are not historical, but they're commentary. Those are what's interesting. It's the religious content, uh, the meaning of the events for the author and his audience. Uh, throughout the long narration, he lets you know that behind the scenes and behind these events, that God is, in fact, the one who's actually in control. And even though these are political events, the author wants you to understand that behind these, the hand of God is actually directing, which is a basic biblical belief. Uh, this is a very famous uh, painting of the fall of Jerusalem. This is actually when the Romans came in. Do you see in the upper left-hand corner what the artist has put up there? A couple of angels. The message is, is even though this is a political event, what do angels represent? God's hand. God's at work in this story. Same thing, the, uh, the uh, author of Daniel letting us know that the hand of God is behind the events being portrayed. So in verse 7, he just drops in at the appointed time. Who appoints? God. Verse 29, that's time appointed, now it's appointed time. Verse 35, the appointed time. Verse 36, what has been determined shall be. Got any Presbyterians here? This is predestination, folks. And predestination is a characteristic of apocalyptic for a very good reason, which we'll look at in a second. What must take place. Remember, where was this written? In the book of truth in heaven. And if it's written in heaven, can it be anything other than what's written, it written to be? That's predestination. Okay. Uh, verse 40, at the time of the end. So all through this, the author's letting you know that, yeah, this is wars between two countries, but God's hand's at work. Uh, everything is predestined. It is written in the book of truth. It's determined. It's appointed. Events must take place. They don't have any choice. Behind the scenes of all this political stuff that, that people are suffering through, God is in control. It's all a part of God's plan. God's at work even when we don't see God at work which is a very important message. Now, this lets us know, and this is probably one of the, the, the real keys to the book of Daniel. It also unlocks the book of Revelation. Um, why the book of Daniel, and all apocalyptic takes this approach, why you would tell the past as though it were the future. What is the point of doing that? Um, why a literary Daniel of the 6th century B.C. tells the story of events down to the actual present, in the middle of the second century B.C. And as we've gone through the book, I think it's really clear that's what he's doing. I mean, it's not one or two or three things. There's dozens of things in this book that give us that feel. Stor telling the story in this way is not, and this is, this is an often a misconception, the author is not fabricating this, okay? The author is not making this up. This is not fiction 
or fantasy. This is not uh, or simply making up a story to make a point. There's actually a much deeper thing that's going on in this chapter in the whole book. It expresses an article of faith. Well, what's the article of faith? Can you agree? God knows the future. Okay, if you buy that premise, God's in control. So you think back in the 6th century, God would have known what was going to happen over the next four, year, four centuries. Most of us would say at some level, probably at some level. And would God have known what the people were going to face in the 2nd century? True. So if in a, a, a story form you write that out, is that fabrication? No. It's telling the truth, but it's telling the truth through a narrative or through a story. Uh, it's interesting, Revelation does not do that. Daniel and many of the others do. So the goal of Daniel is we want to reassure God's people in the middle of a horrendous crisis when they're being oppressed, uh, to reassure them that despite appearances, despite the fact that Antiochus Epiphanes and all the stuff he's doing looks like he's going to win, God's actually in control of history. Most of all, this is the drum roll because this leads us into the last chapter next week. We can trust the future, our real future. If we're living in the second century, we're not talking about the stuff back in the sixth century. If I'm alive during the, the crisis of Antiochus Epiphanes, what am I concerned about? I'm concerned about my future. I'm concerned, am I going to live the rest of the day? Or am I going to be among a lot of other people who've died at his hands? You know? That that future is in God's hands. And even those who perished could not stress this more. This is one of the main things in the book of Daniel. What about all those people who were faithful to God and it cost them their lives? Because Josephus, Maccabees, Daniel, all the, all the sources indicate the same thing. A lot of people died, particularly the ones that tried to resist, the ones that tried to stay true to their faith. They died, and that raises the question of justice. What happens to the righteous when their righteousness causes them their life? And in chapter 12, we will have for the first time in history something that has never been said before, ever, anywhere. And that will be said as an answer to that question. The God who brought our ancestors through the crisis of the past is the God who will bring us through the, the crisis. You narrate all this stuff showing how God's faithful, showing how God brought the people through. And if you can put two and two together, you can say, okay, today in my crisis, can God get me through this? Yes. It's a very important point. So the message is clear. Behind all the chaos and suffering, there's a plan. There is hope. It is written in the books in heaven. It is decreed. It is mapped out. You can put it in the bank. Daniel now turns to recent history, the final two wars, and events leading us down to Antiochus Epiphanes' action. Now, I'm going to be merciful on you. We're going to fast forward through this, and you can read it. It's more of the same thing, you know, you, you know, Army of the North, right? Army of the South. What do you think they're going to do with two wars left? Back, forth, back, forth, back, forth. Okay. Fast forward. Lots of conflict, marching back and forth, people being kicked off the thrones until a very interesting thing happens in the middle of this narration. Again, your, your kindergarten teacher taught you to read so happy. Ah, there it is. Bang, bang, crash, crash, fight, fight, kill, kill <laughs> at the appointed time. Okay, now God's hand 
has come out. He shall return and come into the south, and this, uh, this time shall not be as it was before. The ships of Kittim. You know who Kittim is? You might have read Rome. Kittim is Rome. Rome enters the stage. We are not in the 6th century B.C. Okay. Antiochus the Epiphanes III invaded, this is history, invaded uh, Egypt and was about to take it when Rome came in with its navy and said, basically, no, you don't. And Antiochus the Epiphanes III, not the fourth, who's the guy that we get all this stuff about, limped home with his knuckles wrapped and was seriously ticked and took it out on Jerusalem. Okay? And then he died very quickly, and his son, still angry about this, comes back and precipitates all of the horrendous stuff that happens that, that from this we get the Maccabean revolt kind of thing. Kittim. Um, he shall be enraged, take up. He shall turn back, pay heed. Those forces sent by him shall occupy, profane the temple. That's the one in Jerusalem, the fortress. They shall abolish the regular burnt offering, set up the uh, abomination. This is actually the Antiochus IV that makes desolate. He shall seduce with intrigue those who violate the covenant. So he, he through intrigue, wins some of the Jews over to be his supporters. But the people who are loyal to their God, this is the audience that Daniel's written for, the people who are loyal to their God shall stand firm and take action. And by the way, in Daniel, does action ever violent? No, not Daniel does not advocate violence. Other people do violence, but Daniel never advocates violence. They're going to take action. This is passive resistance. We're going to resist. Okay, Daniel's now brought us down to the present. The crisis precipitated by Antiochus Epiphanes. He addresses his, two, his true audience, which are the wise, those who want to be faithful to God, and by the way, are suffering intensely for it. And this drum roll, he leads us to where he wants us to go. The wise among the people shall give understanding to many. There is a small select group who really know what's going on. These are probably scribal figures. These are leaders among the Jewish people who know Torah. They know the law. They can read. They can interpret scripture. They understand what God, what God is like, what God has done historically, what God is doing now. And they are one voice among many. And they're the voice saying to the people, do not give in to this demand from this, this empire that we submit uh, and just become like everybody else. For some days, however, they shall fall by sword and flame. So temporarily, it ain't good if you're wise and you're faithful. Could it cost you your life? Darn right it could cost your life. And in fact, it cost many of their lives. Suffer captivity. Plunder. They shall fall victim. They shall receive little help. Historically, their help would have come from the Ptolemies of Egypt, but they've been neutralized because the Seleucids have just marched down and taken Egypt. So they have no allies. They shall uh, join, and many shall join them in sincerely. That hurts. There are some Jews 
who will pretend to be your friends, but they're not. They'll stab you in the back. Some of the wise shall fall so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed. This is a major theme that's going to be pulled back into the last chapter, chapter 12. Why do we suffer? Why does evil seem to triumph? Because we are being purified. You know what you do with gold and silver and precious metals? It has to go through the fire. Or even iron and steel. If you don't go the fire and you don't temper it, will it ever be true steel? No. Fire has a purifying and a positive value. So the writer uses that image to say, okay, we're going through the fire, folks. But what will come out the other side will be steel. Okay, it'll be pure metal. Until the end of the time, this is going to be happening. For there is still an interval. We're not over it yet. Suffering does not end today. There is still an interval until God's time. And God will make it right. The king shall act as he pleases. He shall exalt himself and consider himself greater than a god. No ruler in the ancient world in this area ever put forth himself to be worshipped. Now you got in Egypt, you got the pharaohs. Okay. But in this area, no, not the Assyrians, not the Babylonians, not the Persians. Who is the first person historically who put forward and said, you're going to worship me as a god? Put it on his money. Antiochus Epiphanes, 300 years before Caesar. Caesar got it honestly, okay? Stole it from the Greeks, okay? But Antiochus, actually, Alexander the Great initiated this. He just didn't lo live long enough to pull it off. Antiochus Epiphanes is the earliest one. We actually have his coins. And his coins proclaim him to be a god. And he wanted to be worshipped as a god. And Josephus tells us that and Maccabees tells us that. Um, he shall speak horrendous things against the God of gods. Now, who would that be? The God of Israel. He shall prosper. Darn it. You know, I would think that a guy like this wouldn't prosper. This is the problem of evil. Why do the wicked prosper? And he's prospering. Until the period of wrath is completed. In other words, the clock's ticking. For what is determined shall be done. He shall pay no respect to the gods of his ancestors, nor to the one beloved by women. I have no idea who that is. He shall pay no respect to any other god, for he shall consider himself greater than all. He shall honor the god of fortresses. It's a good thing for a military ruler. Instead of these, a god whom his ancestors did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver and precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses by the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall make more wealthy. We know from other sources, this is one of the ways Antiochus Epiphanes uh, acted. He would go in and buy up people. Remember, he, he bought, he sold the high priest position. Remember that? For money. And he would give money to people who would support him. And he would control people in that way. And many, sh uh, and shall appoint many uh, rulers over all. He appointed the high priest. He shall distribute the land for a price. He just comes in. That's all the land's mine. You want to buy it back? Uh, I'll make you a deal. And that's literally what he did. You know. So this lays out the, the recent history, the relevant history, the history that Daniel's really interested in.
Antiochus Epiphanes, in the year 175, precipitated this crisis, unlike anything, and it's a systematic attempt to wipe out the faith and to put himself forward as a god, which the Jews have never had to deal with before. Maccabees gives us an independent version. Just a few verses from Maccabees. This, it's, it, it's less cryptic than Daniel. It's the exact same events. After subduing Egypt, Antiochus returned in the 143rd year. He went up against Israel and came to Jerusalem with a strong force. It's a lot easier to read this one. He arrogantly entered the sanctuary, took the golden altar, the lampstand, all of its utensils. Then it continues in the 15th day of Chislev, in the 145th year, he erected a desolating sacrilege. He erected on the altar in the temple an altar to another god and commanded that people, the Jews, worship it. The books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. I don't know if this is the oldest book burning, but it's among the oldest. But you get the idea. Anyone found possessing a book of the covenant and anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. They kept using violence against Israel, against those who were found month after month in the towns. On the 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifice on the altar that was on top of the altar of the burnt offering. You just take the Jewish altar and stick another one on top of it. According to the decree, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised and their families of those who circumcised them. They hung the infants around their mother's necks and then they threw them off the edge. Now, that's the history. That's when Daniel is written in the midst of this and what the people are having to deal with. The vision is laid out, a history leading up to the present crisis and what people are currently going through. And chapter 11 ends with a statement. You would think this would be the drum roll. This is what you've been waiting for. This is the big thing. And it just sort of tosses it out there. Verse 45, he shall come to his end and no one will help him. Antiochus will just die. But that's not what Daniel's interested in. It's not, you know, it's not the end of the book. We've got a chapter to go. We have part of the vision to go. And what God will do for God's people is what we've not heard yet. Especially those who've suffered and died for their faith. What will be given in the final closing chapter. By the way, the chapter 12 is about one-fourth the length of any other chapter. Just tiny. Just real brief. And full of content. In that final chapter, unlike anything we've seen before, we get the promise for the first time of life after death. Occurs in the closing verses of chapter 12. So next week, Daniel 12, the, the conclusion, the refiner's fire and for the first time, the belief in the resurrection of the dead. So that you will not want to miss. And you can read that one and, and hang it.